Just Another Monster contains adult themes, violence, and content that may be sensitive to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to episode one, season one of Just Another Monster, where we shed light on the monsters that live among us. For the first ever episode of Just Another Monster, we will be discussing the murder of Sarah Yarborough and the Mayflower Killer. This is a case that has spanned nearly 30 years. This first episode hits particularly close to home for me, personally. In some of the earlier trailers for the show, I mentioned that I have a personal connection to this case. This connection still haunts me to this day, and it's something I've only shared with few select people. So for the first time, I will be publicly sharing the events that connect me to this specific case, and it is surely going to send chills down your spine. So sit back, relax, and let me share a story with you. A story of just another monster. First, I need to take you back back to nearly 30 years ago, back to December 14th, 1991. George W. Bush Sr. was president. The song Black or White by Michael Jackson was the number one song in the U.S. charts. Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, was the top movie at the box office, and it was a Saturday. Under the sign of Sagittarius, I Don't even know what the hell that means, but it's in my fact sheet. But it was also the day that 16-year-old Sarah Yarborough was brutally and senselessly murdered by a coward. A sick and depraved monster. Sarah was absolutely full of life. She was loved by her friends and family, and is described as an intelligent and ideal honor student at Federal Way High School, where she attended. Sarah was tall. She had fiery red curly hair and porcelain skin. This was a girl that really stood out. She enjoyed the works of Jane Austen and Emily Dickinson and had a love and admiration for art museums. She had the brilliant mind of an engineer, the grace of a dancer, 
and she was always the type to lose her glasses. She was a loving daughter, a doting grandchild, and a protective big sister. She was more than the typical bright light, says Merlin Epp, who had taught history at Federal Way High School for 37 years. It was not an event where the pages closed easily. Sarah always talked about how she wanted to be an engineer. John Holmquist, Sarah's grandfather, was an engineer, as was her father, Tom Yarborough. Sarah wanted to follow in their footsteps. Sarah and her grandfather even built a robot together. Rocky, the robot. This wasn't some toy they just kind of threw together. This was a fully functioning robot. It was about the size of a small filing cabinet or trash can. Rocky, the robot, had a full mechanical arm that could grip objects, a a slew of spoken phrases that both Sarah and her grandfather both programmed themselves. It even had built-in sonar that would allow it to navigate fully furnished rooms all on its own. Sarah was obviously a very bright girl. She had a supportive, picturesque family. She had her whole life ahead of her, full of hopes and dreams. And sadly, she would never get the opportunity to make them come to fruition. Sarah was also an active member of the Federal Way High School drill team. Now, some of you listening may or may not know what a drill team is, but for the sake of some listeners who are unfamiliar, a drill team is not a cheerleading squad. I think most of those who are or were active in drill would happily correct you if you were to make that assumption. Cheerleading squads are typically used for, you know, hyping up sporting events and pep rallies. They would also hold fundraising functions to raise money for various sports teams and other school programs. Drill teams are all about coordinated and choreographed dance. It's otherwise known as a precision dance team, and they can have anywhere from 25 to 75 active members at any given time. Their routines are highly regimented, are based on precise symmetry, exacting transitions, and most of all, synchronization. Drill teams are also highly active in competitions with other rival schools, often having all-day competitions where multiple schools will compete in a single day. Now, you're probably asking yourself how I know so much about drill teams. Well, I spent most of my high school years in a relationship with someone who was on a drill team at a different school. I used to accompany her on her competitions and eventually started mixing and editing music for them to be used in their routines. In fact, I remember the night I first heard of Sarah's murder on the news. I was 16 years old at the time, and I was on the phone with my high school girlfriend, Kara, when I heard about the case on the news 30 years ago. Now, I mentioned this in the introduction, but for those that may have skipped over it, I personally have a very peculiar, and some might even say paranormal, connection to this particular case. I I don't know if any of you actually believe in that kind of thing, and honestly, I wasn't sure I did until it happened to me. It's something I have only reluctantly shared with very few people in my life due to its level of, well, creepiness. It honestly, it makes the hair stand up on my arm just thinking about it right now, and I promise you we will get to that soon enough. But first, we need to talk about the unfortunate events that took place December 14th, 1991. 
On Friday, December 13th, 1991, Laura and Tom Yarborough left for Ocean Shores. Sarah's younger brother, Andrew, had a soccer tournament there. Later that evening, Sarah and a friend were having a sleepover at Sarah's house. They spent the evening getting ready for one of those big drill competitions I had mentioned earlier. Now, according to Sarah's friend that stayed the previous night, Sarah was to meet with other Jewel team members at the high school that faithful Saturday morning. Sarah had left in a hurry, worried that she was running late to meet with the rest of the Jewel team at her school. They were to meet at the parking lot of her high school at 8 a.m. and then travel together to the competition. This was pretty normal for this kind of thing. In a rush, Sarah left her house alone. This was just a little bit after 8 a.m. She borrowed her grandfather's car and drove to the high school where she parked in the student parking lot. In an unfortunate and some could even argue predestined turn of events, Sarah arrived at the school 45 minutes early. That's right. You see, Sarah was wrong about the time she was supposed to meet with the rest of the drill team members. They were supposed to meet at 9 a.m., not 8. Now, it's believed that Sarah arrived at the student parking lot of the school around 8.15 a.m. as another Federal Way High School student made a statement to investigators saying that she had seen Sarah's car at roughly 8.25 a.m. unoccupied. That means within a short window of just 10 minutes between Sarah's arrival at the school and the student witness testimony, Sarah was gone. So how did no one see Sarah exit her vehicle? How were there no other witnesses? Well, here is a lesser known fact for those that are listening and are not familiar with the Pacific Northwest. The winters in the Pacific Northwest can be a bit brutal. They are long and they are cold, but most of all, they are dark. It's one of the reasons we have some of the highest rates for seasonal affective disorder and we rank at number 10 for depression in the entire United States. This is according to the CDC. Another known fact is that the Pacific Northwest also happens to rank fifth in serial killers per capita, the number one position belonging to our neighboring Alaska. You know, I've always wondered if our long winters had any correlation to that. Anyhow, during the heart of winter, the sun begins to set around 4 p.m and it's usually pretty dark, almost completely dark by 5 p.m. The sunrise doesn't even begin until roughly 8 a.m., and you won't see much of the sun until at least 9 a.m. On December 14, 1991, the sunrise began at 7.49 a.m. Yes, I actually looked this up. It was 44 degrees and cloudy that morning, so that means it was a particularly dark morning that day, so this is what likely contributed to the fact that no one witnessed Sarah getting out of her car. After investigators had arrived at the scene, they located Sarah's vehicle in the student parking lot. The vehicle was unlocked and some of Sarah's belongings remained inside the vehicle undisturbed. Now, the facts in this case get a little hazy between the time that Sarah arrived at the student parking lot and when her body was found a short time later. What we do know, though, is roughly around 9.10 a.m. that morning, a man was jogging near the school's tennis courts. Adjacent to the parking lot was a large practice ball field, like a soccer field or football field. 
This was on a raised plot of land, about 30 feet above the level of the parking lot. Now, west of the parking lot were the practice field and tennis courts. This is according to the probable cause declarations made by Detective Kathleen Decker. The man stated he was jogging near the tennis courts when he had noticed some movement in the brush up on the hill that was adjacent to the practice field. When he looked over, he witnessed a young girl lying motionless on the ground. He also saw a white male kneeling over her, moving his disgusting hands over the girl's body, specifically over her breasts and thighs. The jogger surprisingly didn't think much of what he saw at all. Oddly enough, he thought they were a couple just making out, and then he continued to jog on as if everything was normal. He had to describe the male as a white man, roughly six feet tall, straight dirty blonde hair, and wearing a dark trench coat. Now, I, I personally have to say something here. Who in their right mind would think of this as a normal situation? A woman lying lifeless on the ground with a six foot tall man in a dark trench coat molesting her body? I mean, think about it for a moment. I guess it could be assumed that Sarah was likely deceased at this point, but seriously, is it a normal occurrence to see this kind of thing while you're out jogging on a Saturday morning? Anyhow, just a few moments later, around 9.20 a.m., two 12-year-old boys were walking through the school's grounds near the tennis courts. While walking through the tennis courts, they saw a tall white male wearing a long, dark trench coat emerge from the brushy hillside next to the practice field. The boys later described the male as 17 to 30 years old, six feet tall, with blondish shoulder-length hair. At the very moment this was happening, the remaining Jewel team members had arrived at the school and were now loading up onto the bus to travel to the competition, completely unaware of what was about to happen. The boys had stated the man looked in their direction, and the moment the man saw the young boys, he quickly turned away and began walking rapidly towards the student parking lot, which was roughly about 100 feet away. One of those boys, who is about 42 years of age today, was interviewed recently by Amy Clancy of Cairo 7 News. During the interview, he recalled those horrific memories. He wishes to remain anonymous because his own children still don't know about the trauma he experienced that horrible day in December 1991. He was probably 30, maybe 25 yards away from us. Me and my friend, we just kind of stopped. He's staring at us, and then we're looking, and what the hell is going on with this guy? They couldn't see Sarah's body from where they were. Curious, the boys continued walking in the direction of the brush where the male had hastily emerged from. As they approached the hillside, they saw the lifeless body of a girl, wearing a drill team uniform, lying motionless on her back. It broke me as a young man. Having come to grips with that, it's a very, very horrible thing. Seeing evil face to face like that and knowing that it's real and it's there. It's a very scary thing to come to grips with. Now, I can't imagine the kind of trauma this would cause for two young kids. And to see true, concentrated evil face to face like that. Children should never have to experience something so horrible. They didn't just see Sarah's lifeless body. They came eye to eye with evil itself. The two 12-year-old boys quickly ran back to one of their homes to inform their parents, who then called the King County Sheriff's Office. This occurred around 9.33 a.m. And to think, 
All it took was a curiosity of two 12-year-old boys to take the initiative and inform authorities of what they had just seen. Yet, an adult male jogger chalks it up to a couple of people just making out in some bushes as if that's a normal thing. Amazing. The responding investigators arrived within minutes of the call to the sheriff's office. It was then they discovered the lifeless body of Sarah Yarborough. And just a fair warning, some of what I'm about to describe may be triggering for some. According to court filings, Sarah was still wearing her drill team skirt and sweater. Her shoes were still on her feet, but they were unlaced. Her nylon stockings were wrapped around her neck in a ligature. About three feet from her body laid the rest of her clothing. Her underwear, her bra, jacket, and her socks. They appeared to have been placed there rather than just tossed there. This lends to the idea that Sarah was possibly forced to undress almost completely. Thankfully, the boys were able to work with a sketch artist and were able to provide an accurate description of the monster. A sketch of the suspect was then widely circulated in the Seattle King County area. The autopsy that was performed found that the cause of death was the result of ligature strangulation, and there was evidence of blunt force injuries to her face. But there was no indication of sexual penetration, and no semen was found on or in her body. However, there was semen discovered on the multiple items of Sarah's clothing that were laid neatly by her body, and it had appeared to investigators that the semen had been deposited after the clothes had been placed there. This means that the monster that had committed this act forced Sarah to remove her clothing in 44 degree weather, beat her and strangled her to death, and then relieved himself on her personal articles of clothing after the fact. This was a monster, without a doubt. DNA specialists were able to pull a single male DNA profile from the semen found on Sarah's clothing. However, that DNA profile was not associated with any known individual despite regular searches in the Washington and National Forensic Databases, and it would remain this way for nearly 30 years. Andrew Yarborough, Sarah's younger brother, remembers he was just 11 years old and playing in a Saturday morning soccer tournament when police arrived at his game to talk to his parents. Andrew told Crime Watch Daily that Sarah did not have any enemies. She was never involved in drugs or hung out with a bad crowd. She just wasn't that kind of person, and she didn't have any obsessive or crazed ex-boyfriends either. The violent and seemingly random nature of this crime gripped the community with fear. It just changes things, said King County Sheriff's Captain Ted Bowe. Afterwards, I, I think people were just more conscious about being in groups and not being alone. Now, I personally remember just how much this case had seized the communities in federal way, not to mention other surrounding cities and counties. As I mentioned, I was in high school myself at the time, and I happened to be in a relationship with someone on a drill team. I remember school administrators taking extra precautions to make sure students were safe on school grounds. My own high school had beefed up its own security and they would stand outside each morning waiting for students to arrive. Young girls who were part of any athletic teams had to walk in pairs in the early morning hours or in the later hours after team practices. Following Sarah's murder, there was a massive manhunt. More than 2,500 tips poured in and most importantly, 
invaluable physical evidence had been collected from the scene. Now, initially the DNA was used to perform some genealogy-related searches. This is a process that took about eight years at the time to complete. The closest profile they were able to connect to the DNA went all the way back to the year 1620. The DNA was related to the Fuller family, which came to the Americas on the Mayflower. And it was then that the suspect in this case was dubbed the Mayflower Killer. And this is all detectives had to go on. In 2002, Detective Jim Doyen had already been working on Sarah's cold case for 10 years. Detective Doyen had actually filed the arrest report on Gary Leon Ridgway. At the time, Gary Leon Ridgway was already charged with four murders that had been attributed to the Green River Killer. Doyen himself was part of the Green River Task Force. Ridgway, who we should all know by now as the Green River Killer, was ultimately eliminated as a suspect in Sarah's murder. The DNA just didn't match. Sadly, the case ran cold again, and the surrounding communities continued to ask questions, wondering nervously and even coming up with their own theories as to who may have killed Sarah. Ted Bowe remembers these events firsthand. That's because Ted Bowe attended high school with Sarah all those years ago. I did. I, I knew who she was. You would see her in the hallway, and she was on the drill team. You, you can't miss the red hair, said Captain Bowe. Coincidentally, Ted Bowe was the sheriff's captain heading up the team in charge of solving Sarah's murder. This is the case that would be the most important for me as I look at the wall. And not to discount other cases, but this one I have a personal tie to, said Captain Bowe during an interview with True Crime Daily. It means something to me to be able to say that while I was here, we solved this case. By February 2018, Ted Bowe was commanding the major investigations unit for the King County Sheriff's Office. Using DNA evidence collected at the scene, new sketches were created by Parabon Nanolabs, a DNA engineering lab that works with breakthrough DNA engineering technology for both therapeutics and forensics. Now, using some pretty impressive DNA mapping technology, Parabon Nanolabs was able to provide an updated composite sketch of the individual witnesses saw leaving the scene of the murder. This gave detectives new hope, as more tips rolled in, but nothing stuck. It wasn't until September 27, 2019, that Detective Kathleen Decker of the King County Sheriff's Office received a phone call from Dr. Colleen Fitzpatrick, who is the founder of Identifinder International, which is operated by international forensic genealogists based out of Fountain Valley, California. Dr. Fitzpatrick had actually worked on the case several times over the last 28 years. She had recently been contracted by the King County Sheriff's Department in 2019 to perform additional genealogy comparisons. Dr. Fitzpatrick had called to state that she and two other genealogists and colleagues had identified a potential lead, a person of interest in this case. Finally, according to the probable cause testimony from Detective Kathleen Decker, all three genealogists had shared the names of two brothers that were identified through a family tree analysis originating from the unknown suspect's DNA profiles. After nearly 30 years, they had a real break in the case, a lead that could finally bring this monster to justice. The two brothers were identified as Edward Peter Nichols and Patrick Leon Nichols. Both brothers had blue eyes and blonde hair. 
This information was derived from researching family members from three sets of grandparents. After learning the names of the two brothers, Detective Decker investigated their criminal history within the criminal justice system. Edward P. Nichols, the older of the two brothers, had a prior conviction for rape in the first degree, and he was a registered sex offender. Edward's DNA was in the CODIS at the time. For those who may be unfamiliar, the CODIS is the Combined Index DNA System, which is a program managed by the FBI to support criminal justice DNA databases. So if you've ever been arrested and had your DNA taken, it's probably in the CODIS. So if Edward's DNA was already in the CODIS, that means he couldn't have been Sarah's killer, as the unknown suspect's DNA profile had been run against existing DNA profiles for nearly 30 years with no successful matches. The DNA of Patrick Leon Nichols, the younger brother, was not in the CODIS at all, so any searches would have been futile. Patrick Leon Nichols just graduated to public enemy number one. Upon learning this, Detective Decker unraveled a long and violent criminal history for Patrick Leon Nichols. And yeah, this, this was a monster. In 1983, Patrick Leon Nichols was convicted of attempted rape at just the age of 19. The police report states that he had approached a young woman in her car and threatened her with a knife. He then forced her to disrobe in her vehicle and at knife point forced her to walk toward a turbulent and freezing river. Terrified of what was about to happen to her, the woman escaped by jumping into the icy cold and rushing currents of the river successfully swimming away from what could have been a violent end to her life. Law enforcement later learned that Patrick Leon Nichols then withdrew a sum of money from his bank account and fled the area by plane, literally that same day. He was later apprehended and ultimately pled guilty to attempted rape in the first degree. He was sentenced to prison and only did four years before he was released back into the general public. And it gets worse. In 1993, he was arrested within King County for child molestation in the first degree. Now, there aren't many accessible records on this case, and due to the nature of the victims, and as someone who has suffered child molestation myself, I have chosen to not go into the details about this part of the case. The molestation charge that Patrick Leon Nichols had faced was resolved with a guilty plea and was reduced to a gross misdemeanor assault charge in the fourth degree. Now, you might be asking yourself right now, so if this crime occurred in 1993, two years after Sarah was murdered, how is it possible that his DNA was not in the CODIS? Yeah, I, I pretty much asked myself that same question, and I honestly, I wish I had the answers. What I do know is that Washington State Sex Offender Registration and DNA Collection for CODIS Eligible Offenses started in 1990, one year before Sarah was murdered. Now, this was a monster who was able to commit a horrible act and take someone's life. He stole the light from Sarah and walked away, only to move on to child molestation two years later. That's because Patrick Leon Nichols never actually provided a DNA sample for entry into the CODIS. My only guess is because he pled out his child molestation charge, which reduced it to a misdemeanor from a felony. Now, at this point, the detectives wanted to move fast. Just two days after learning the name of the Mayflower killer, the King County Sheriff detectives started to conduct surveillance on Patrick Leon Nichols. On September 29, 2019, during the surveillance operation, a detective had approached who he thought to be Patrick Leon Nichols. 
He introduced himself and asked the suspect for directions. The detective then thanked Patrick, and he responded with, My name is Leon. The detectives were finally able to confirm their suspect. You know, I, I just realized that both the Green River Killer and the Mayflower Killer both share the same middle name, Leon. That's weird. Anyhow, the detectives had been surveilling a dry cleaners located in a small strip mall in Kent, Washington. Patrick Nichols was a smoker, and the detectives had observed Patrick taking smoke breaks in between shifts at the dry cleaners where he was employed. On September 30th, 1991, during the surveillance operation, the detective observed Leon smoking a cigarette and then discarding the butt on the ground. A short time later, Leon came back to smoke another cigarette, which he also tossed on the ground. Patrick also reached into his pocket, and when he pulled his hand out, a used napkin fell to the ground. Detective Spite of the King County Sheriff's Department collected both cigarette butts and the napkin. These key items were then transported to the Washington State Patrol Crime Lab for DNA processing. Just a few days later, on October 2, 2019, Detective Decker received a phone call from the Washington State Patrol Crime Lab DNA scientist Jennifer Venditto. Yep, you guessed it. It was confirmed. The DNA profile from the cigarette butts and the napkin were a match to the previously unknown male DNA profile attained from the clothing found at the scene of Sarah Yarborough's murder. They got him. They finally caught this monster. For 28 years, this monster eluded police, and he could now finally be brought to justice. At the time, Patrick Leon Nichols, who had no real ties to the community, was living in a dilapidated house in Kent, Washington. It's the kind of place you'd expect a monster like this to be festering in. Junk everywhere, overgrown grass, broken windows. It almost appeared to be abandoned and rotting from the inside out. Probably a lot like Patrick himself. To think, after all this time, the suspect wasn't dead like many had later come to believe. He wasn't in prison. He didn't flee the country or even move to another state. This monster was living among us this entire time for 28 years and just shy of eight miles from where Sarah's murder took place. On October 3rd, 2019, Patrick Leon Nichols, now at 55 years old and otherwise known as the Mayflower Killer, was arrested and charged with the murder of Sarah Yarborough. 28 years after he took her life. On October 17, 2019, Patrick Leon Nichols pled not guilty for Sarah's murder. Now, the trial date for Patrick Leon Nichols was initially set for February 2020. Uh, this has likely been delayed due to COVID, and there's no word yet on an updated trial date. As of now, Patrick Leon Nichols remains behind bars, with bail set at $5 million dollars as he awaits trial. I suspect he will spend the rest of his life rotting behind bars. We can only hope. Now, I had mentioned earlier that I had a peculiar connection to this case, and as promised, I'm gonna share exactly what that is. Now, this is the first time I've ever really shared this publicly or outside of a handful of very select people, so please bear with me here. Remember how I mentioned before the, the night I first heard about the case on the news while talking to my high school girlfriend on the phone? Well, 
my girlfriend Kara at the time was also on a drill team at a local high school. We actually happened to be on the phone that night because Kara's drill team was scheduled to compete in the same competition Sarah and her team had planned to attend that weekend. It was a night like any other night at my house. It was December 14th, 1991. My mom was watching Star Trek The Next Generation and I was on the phone with Kara. This was a normal ritual for us as she lived in another town and went to a different high school. We would always talk on the phone after watching Beverly Hills 90210. Yeah, I I used to watch 90210. I remember being on the phone with Kara that night when the breaking news came on and it was about a girl found murdered just outside of her high school. I remember watching the newscast and I was kind of speechless. I couldn't help but notice the similarities, the names Sarah and Kara and both were on drill teams and even more eerie is both of them had fiery red curly hair. I even remember the photo they used of Sarah clear as day. It actually kind of looked like a high school photo to me. And I remembered this very distinct earring that she wore in the photo. It stood out so much, just like Sarah herself, almost as if it were her favorite pair of earrings and she wanted them to be seen in her photos. It was a hooped earring that had a small white flower on it consisting of five petals. Now, I don't know why this stuck with me, but it's been burned into my memory and I can still remember it as if it happened yesterday. And the similarities were definitely there. Both Kara and I were absolutely weirded out. The red curly hair, the drill team connection, but that was nothing compared to what was about to happen months later. And I... Hope all of you are ready for this. Fast forward to June 1992. School was about to be let out. Summer was coming. Now, I don't know how it's done now in schools today, but towards the end of the school year in the 90s, the school would distribute your high school photos that were taken earlier in the year. You know, the ones used in yearbooks and whatnot. It was kind of an annual ritual for everyone in school to pick up your photos and show them to your friends. It was a sign that the school year was ending and another year had passed and summer awaited us. That year, I was sharing a locker with my friend, uh, which was a pretty common thing for overcrowded inner city schools at the time. Now, I wasn't exactly an exemplary student. I was consistently getting into trouble with my teachers and administration. I skipped class a lot, didn't do my homework. Uh, I was pretty much like any other misunderstood kid with ADD. I was what was defined as unmanageable. My friend, though, she was a saint. She looked out for me, and Lord knows I needed it. It was picture day. I had to stay behind class yet again, and my friend had offered to pick up my school photos for me, which she did. We met up at the end of sixth period, and the halls were filled with kids sharing each other's photos. Girls were complimenting each other and how great their photos turned out and self-deprecating while asking for wallet sizes from their friends. Guys were making fun of each other's goofy photos and their ridiculous skater haircuts. When I ran into my locker partner, she of course asked to see mine, as expected. I was a pretty shy kid actually, but I trusted my friend. She was always enthusiastic and happy she was, she was good people. Now, when she picked up both of our photos, she stored them 
uh, at the top of our locker. There's like a little space up there where you can put books and whatnot. And when she asked to see them, I reluctantly grabbed them from the top of the locker and started to open the envelope. I started to open the envelope and I pulled out the first 8x10 headshot and um, chills ran down my spine and I instantly became nauseous. I stood there motionless for what seemed like an eternity. I think my friend asked me what was wrong and I don't even remember answering. All I could do was focus on what I was looking at and I couldn't believe what I was seeing. A hoop earring with a white flower, five petals, fiery red curly hair and porcelain skin. That's right, I was looking at Sarah. The very same photos that were used on the news broadcast I saw on December 14th, 1991. Several copies of Sarah's school photos were somehow mixed in with mine. To this day, I don't know how. I'd never met Sarah before. I didn't know who she was until I saw her on the news. I never knew anyone that knew her or anyone related to her. She was a total stranger to me, and up until that very moment, total coincidence. Our names aren't even close to being the same or even remotely similar in any way. We weren't even the same school district. And if these were recent photos, how did the news have them seven months before I got mine? And if they were older photos, how on earth were they mixed in with mine? These are all thoughts that raced through my head, and I still don't have answers to, to this day. I remember walking home that day in a daze, and there was this eerie cold that surrounded me. I went through so many scenarios in my head trying to figure out how this was possible. I was worried to even share it with anyone back then. They hadn't caught this guy yet, so for a long time I was petrified with fear. I remember when I got home, I, I told my mom what happened, and she was absolutely convinced that it was a message of some kind. I honestly don't know what to believe. To this day, I, I still don't know how it happened, but what I, what I do know is that it goes beyond the realm of just mere coincidence, at least in my opinion. Now, we were able to get the contact information of Sarah's family from the news, who referred us to the uh, active detectives on the case. They gave us the work number of Sarah's father, and I called him, and I spoke to him on the phone. I remember hearing the sadness in her father's voice. I could actually feel it. But when I explained to him what happened, it's like suddenly I could hear in his stuttered voice a sense of closure. I like to think that maybe, just maybe, I was meant to receive Sarah's photos. That all of the circumstances that, that led me to that very moment to reach out to her father, that it was some sort of divine way of letting him know that she's in a better place and that there's something much larger at work. It still haunts me to this day. To be quite honest with you, Sarah's case was the sole inspiration for me to start doing this show. My heart goes out to Sarah's surviving family. 
and I want to give thanks to the numerous detectives who worked tirelessly for nearly 30 years bringing Sarah's monster to justice. The Yarboroughs have since moved to a small harbor town where they run a quaint bed and breakfast near the bay. It's a place where people can take time to appreciate what's important and to remember what matters most. They spend their free time on weekends helping struggling parents who have lost children of their own, offering their own experiences and guidance towards healing and acceptance. In 1993, Sarah's classmates graduated on what would have been her 18th birthday. A memorial at the school was dedicated to Sarah, where it still stands to this day. A large marble bench decorated with a bronzed satchel, a stack of books, a pair of ballet slippers, a necktie, and the Latin phrase carpe diem seize the day. A small sculptured dog peers over the bench as if expecting someone to return someday. A nearby plaque bears the inscription to honor Sarah Yarborough, seeker of knowledge, wholeness, and holiness, seer of truth, beauty, and dreams. A gift from her class of 1993, family, and friends. May she now rest in peace. Thank you all for listening to the very first episode of Just Another Monster. Now, I would love to hear your thoughts on the show. I've set up a phone number that you can call and leave a voice message telling me your thoughts on this case. And if you want, I may even include them on the next episode. So feel free to call me at 520-428-4373. Leave your first name and your location, and most importantly, your thoughts and opinions. I would absolutely love to hear them. As an alternative, you can also go to anchor.fm forward slash just another monster and leave a voice message there as well if you want. And remember, if you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe or follow wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you next time. <laughs>